We are going to be reading from Romans 8, 12 through 17, on page 944 in the Pew Bibles. <clears throat> so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. How we see ourselves matters. Our understanding of who we are drives our actions. If someone speeds past me on the freeway going 100 miles an hour, I'm not going to chase them down and try to give them a ticket because I'm not a police officer. That is not who I am. That is not what I do. How we see ourselves matters, impacts our actions. But there's a surprising reality in today's text that's even more important than how we understand ourselves. How we understand the identity of God matters even more. If we understand God to be our creator, that's great, a wonderful start. Paul says in Romans 1 that we can look at nature and we can recognize that, that there is a creator. If we understand God to be our judge, that's great, even better perhaps. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2 that we can get a sense of that through our guilty conscience and the laws of nature. But there's an identity of God that does not come to us naturally. He's not just our creator and our judge, but our dear father. We need to know God as our dear father and ourselves as his true sons and daughters so that our motivations are in check, our actions, our thoughts are in check. And we lean into the identity that God has given to us in Christ by his Holy Spirit. The big idea today is that we know God not just as creator and judge, but as our redeeming father in Christ by the Spirit. We know God not just as creator and judge, but as our redeeming father in Christ by the Spirit. And we can see this first in verses 12 through 13. The first point there, Christians are debtors to mercy alone. I'll read those verses, just 12 and 13 again for us. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. As debtors to mercy, Christians are to actively work with the Holy Spirit to put their sinful desires to death. Look at verse 12 there. The ESV translation reads, we are debtors not to the flesh. And that's a bit of an awkward way to say it. I think we would all recognize. It would be easier, it would be more clear to say we are not debtors to the flesh rather than we are debtors not to the flesh. It sounds like a Yoda translation, but that's not the case. Even the Greek underneath this translation is phrased in an unusual way as well. And it seems to be because Paul is implying something here. He explicitly says that we are not debtors to the flesh, yes, but he seems to imply 
that we are debtors in some sense. So let's first, though, think about how we are not debtors. A, we are not obligated to obey our sinful desires. And we see this in verse 12. Paul is completing his argument here, wrapping it up, that begins in chapter 6, verse 1. Paul had already clearly stated that we are saved by faith alone in Christ's substitutionary atoning death in our place. That first man, Adam, brought death into the world by disobeying God, by obeying his sinful desires of his flesh. But Jesus brought life into the world by being obedient to his Father, being tempted in every way like us and yet without sin. Adam disobeyed God's law, and as a consequence, death reigned. Jesus obeyed God's law, and as a consequence, grace reigns. So by faith, we become united with Jesus so that what is true of him becomes true of us. So Jesus' righteousness is then credited to our account. And Paul says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so Paul raises the question in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Should we sin all the more so that grace may abound? And then he follows up very quickly by saying, absolutely not. But really, from that verse up until now, he's explaining why it is unthinkable for a Christian to live in unrepentant sin in an ongoing basis. Paul's audience was familiar with the practice of slavery. If someone had borrowed money that they couldn't pay back, they would be sold into slavery to pay off what they owed. They had an obligation to the debt. But Paul is hammering this point. We are no longer enslaved to sin. We don't owe our sinful desires anything. We are not obligated to them. Chapter 7 then describes the experience of the active war of the inner life of a Christian. There is a war between the new life of freedom that we have been freely given by God and the experience of remaining indwelling sin. Because as Josh was telling us last week, when we are born again, we are enabled by God to not sin. But we are not yet fully able to not sin. And living between these sort of two cross pressures is massively frustrating. I trust you've experienced this as well. I do the thing I hate, I know I shouldn't, I love the goodness of God's law in my innermost being, and yet, I still have disordered desires, I still sin. That's why the Christian constantly looks forward to that last day when Christ will finally and fully free us from this world with its fallen, corrupted order, its sin, and bring us to a renewed heaven and earth where sin no longer dwells. He will resurrect us bodily, just as he has already resurrected us spiritually. Christ obeyed God's law for us in the flesh, he says in chapter 8 in the beginning there. He did what the law could not, what we could not do. He obeyed God's law for us in the flesh, and he fulfilled the righteous requirement of that law for his people. When on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished, he meant at least in part that he has just accomplished what no other man could ever accomplish. He obeyed God in the flesh. Every other man, every other woman fails to do that, even with the greatest of intentions. Think of him in the desert having fasted for 40 days. 
The tempter stirs up the desires of the flesh. Just make some bread and eat it. Obey your hunger. And yet Jesus did not test God. He was tempted to avoid the suffering of the cross by bowing the knee and worshiping Satan. And yet he endured the sufferings of the cross for the joy that was set before him. See him in the garden, suffering both in body and in soul, sweating, as it were, drops of blood because his desire was not to obey the disordered passions of the flesh, but to obey the Father's will. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are in Christ Jesus by the instrument of faith through his Holy Spirit. That is why we are not obligated to obey the flesh. He crushed its power and he gave us his Holy Spirit and we are obligated to obey the Holy Spirit. This is B. We see this in verse 13. What do we do in between these times? We've been resurrected spiritually, we've been born again from above, and yet we are not in our resurrected, glorified, sinless bodies. Paul's answer seems to be that we are to focus on the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. We are to lean into the future. He says, don't walk according to the flesh, which is to say, don't obey your sinful passions of your flesh, but rather walk according to the Spirit. Live according to the Spirit. Set your minds on the things of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit helps us put to death the old sinful passions of the flesh. Paul tells us that someone who, as a manner of life, willfully engages in sin without repenting of it and in an ongoing basis is headed toward eternal death. He's not speaking of sporadic failures of believers who, after sinning, repent of it. You all know that sinless perfection is not required for membership at Trinity Bible Church. Do not delude yourself into thinking that sinless perfection is even possible on this side of glorification. The church is, after all, made up of sinners, but it is made up of a very particular kind of sinners, repentant sinners. Not those who enjoy living according to their sinful desires, but those who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, desire to be freed from the sin which once held them captive. We once were slaves of sin, but Jesus set us free. He enables us to no longer be enslaved to sin. He cancels our debt and gives us his spirit. And you and I are to cooperate with his Holy Spirit, becoming more and more like Jesus over time. That means that we must work to put our sin to death. Paul is very explicit here. Jesus himself says that if you love him, you will obey his commandments, does he not? God's grace is not a free pass to allow us to do whatever our sinful passions would have us to do. It is a free pass to be able to kill sin, which is a much better reality. We are to mortify it. We are to be done with it. Do you know the experience of coming into the light and out of the darkness? If you're a Christian, then you do. This is the first step of Christianity. 
Christian, you are to obey the Holy Spirit in an ongoing life of repentance, doing the work that is necessary to put your sin to death, not to coddle it, not to justify it, not to protect it, but to be done with it. Do you know the experience of hating some of the things that you do, that you still do as a Christian? You must know that the power available to you brings change. This is, this is true hope. And it requires your effort. We must actively work with the Holy Spirit to put sin to death. Now, please don't get comfortable with sin. I hope you hear the stark warning in this passage. Do not get comfortable with, with sin and don't give up the fight. Strive towards holiness because after all, that is where peace, that is where joy is actually found. If you have settled into a rhythm of engaging in habitual sin without it bothering your conscience at all, you're in a dangerous if not deadly place. You are in grave danger. If you're presuming upon God's grace to justify your sin, you're in a bad place. John Owen, in his great book, The Mortification of Sin, makes the case that if your primary motivation for not running headlong is to sin, into sin, is that you're afraid of the consequences of that sin, then you haven't fully understood what repentance is. Do you understand what I mean by this? Avoiding sin because you're afraid of the relational toll that it might take on you or your family members is not the motivation you need. Avoiding sin because it le- it's an illegal activity and there might be consequences legally speaking, that is not the motivation that you need. Avoiding sin because you're afraid of your reputation being damaged in the sight of other people is not the motivation that you need to avoid the sin that leads to death. If that is your motivation, that's a sign that your sinful passion isn't dead, it's simply sleeping. It's hibernating, and it's waiting for an opportunity. Our obedience should come from a positive love of righteousness. Our obedience should come from a positive love of righteousness and hatred of sin, not to look righteous in the eyes of others or of a hatred of the consequences of sin, but hatred of sin itself. And if you have experienced God's corrective discipline in your life because of habitual sin, and yet you're still not convinced enough to actually repent, you should take a moment now in your pew, take stock of your soul. What sin is it that you're struggling with right now? What comes to mind first? And when I say struggling, I actually mean struggling with it, against it, not just engaging with it. I know that sometimes we say we're struggling with sin when what we're actually doing is satisfying sin. What sin comes to mind? Is it sexual immorality? Is it being quarrelsome? Slothfulness? Drunkenness? Envy? Anger? self-ambition, stirring up dissension and division, drunkenness. This is a list from Galatians 5. If as I was listing those things off, you're like, oh no, is he speaking to me? I wasn't. But the Holy Spirit might have been. 
What do you need to do to kill that sin? See it for what it is. It's deadly. And it's beneath your dignity as a child of the king. Set your mind on the things of the spirit. Think that Christ died for not sin in a hypothetical reality, but your sin. Consider confessing to a trusted Christian friend or a pastor. Do you need to avoid going certain places? Do you need to avoid certain friends that, uh, uh, that bring you into temptation? Maybe you need to block certain websites from your devices. And I'm not just speaking of porn, but potentially even social media. Be prepared to listen and obey the leading of the Holy Spirit, even now, where you're at right now. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Point two. Read verse 14 with me. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, surely you have heard the phrase, maybe you've even said it yourself, we are all God's children. Every person is. And there's a sense in which we would want to affirm that statement. Anyone, of course, who has been born owes his natural life to God as his creator. Paul affirms this in Acts 17. He says, we are indeed all God's offspring. So everyone relates to God as creator. We owe our life, our being, to God. But only those who are born again truly relate to God as redeemer. This is why we say only twice born, born again, sinners have God as redeeming father. The second point. In John chapter 8, Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, says, If God was your father, you would love me, for I came from God. You don't understand what I say because you can't bear to hear my word. You are, this is what he says, of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's, that is the devil's, desires. You don't hear my words because you're not of God. You're not from God the Father. I was at a pastor's conference in Kentucky this week called Together for the Gospel. Uh, it's 12,000 folks gathered together from around the world and in the convention center with all these people I met someone who told me that he had relatives who go to Trinity Bible Church and uh, before he could say anything I said well you look like John Wilson. He goes that's my brother. I'm Josh Wilson uh, and so Josh Wilson says hello by the way. Uh, wanna? I could just see it, like he looks very much like his brother. I recognized that he belonged to that family because I could see the very clear family resemblance. One of the reasons that we refer to the third person of the Trinity as Holy Spirit is because he makes his people holy. I'm helped by the Dutch Reformed theologian from the 1600s named Peter van Maastricht who categorizes three offices of the Holy Spirit, as you see on the slides there, is teaching, sanctifying and comforting the three offices of the Holy Spirit and we see all three of these I believe appropriated to the Holy Spirit here just in this passage we receive the Holy Spirit upon being born again he gives us life he teaches us he gives us ears to hear as Jesus was speaking about to hear the words of Jesus as words of life and to love Jesus knowing that he came from the Father to call him Lord. This is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's part of his teaching ministry. He leads us into all truth. He gives us the power, the capacity to know and exercise saving faith. 
But the Spirit also leads us as God's redeemed children to become more like our Holy Father. And that's what sanctification means, to increase in holiness. So once that Holy Spirit dwells in us, we're born again, he creates new life and he grows certain characteristics in us. The fruit of the new life in us is evident in results. If we've been born again and the Holy Spirit resides in us, there will be some evidence of that reality. There are characteristics of godliness that we read about, about God from the Bible. God is holy. God is just. He is merciful. He is righteous, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He is true and he is wise. He is, he is just. And we should, by the power of the Holy Spirit's leading over time, look more and more like him in those ways. So here's a searching question for all of us. If someone who knows God as Father was to meet you at a conference center of 12,000 people, would they be able to recognize you? Would they see the family resemblance? Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as his beloved children. So is the will of God your delight like it is for our adopted older brother Jesus? Might it be possible that you're embarrassed to be known as a member of God's family? There are some crazy aunts and cousins who claim the name of Christ too. I know the desire to, to try to distance yourself and distinguish yourself from them. But one of the evidences that we are actually led by the Holy Spirit is that we have a love for his people. God's holy church is not sinless, but it is dedicated, it is devoted to God. He set us apart to be distinct from the world as his children because he claims us as his own by his Holy Spirit. The Spirit leads us, we would have to say mysteriously, by amending our wills to desire what we ought to desire. He produces repentance in us. He conforms our will to God's will. He gives us a passion for prayer and praise. Not by coercion, but by freeing us to desire what we ought. And he gives us a hatred for the sin from which God has redeemed us. That's specifically what Paul has in mind here. The leading of the Holy Spirit is in terms of putting to death sin. But let's just think for a moment, very quickly, about the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Part of the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit is mysterious. Jesus told us that he would lead us into all truth by reminding us of Christ's teaching found in the word. The Holy Spirit's building up his church as a gift given to his church by Jesus. And haven't we had that experience before, those mysterious leadings of the Holy Spirit? There are times when we're led inwardly to do something uh, or say something to someone or to not do something or to not say something. If you've experienced this, you know what I mean. Difficult to explain. These promptings are always appropriate things. They're always consistent with God's revealed will. They are not authoritative and binding in the way that Scripture is. But has this happened to you before? Where you, you wake up in the middle of the night and someone just comes to mind. And you just know that you should pray for them. Or maybe you're having lunch on your break and you notice someone who's by herself at a table who just looks troubled. And you feel led to go to speak with her. And you get an opportunity then to share the gospel. Or you notice that a friend has been sort of acting out of character a little bit. 
lately and you become burdened for him or her. And you press in to see if she's okay. She confesses that she's having marital problems. And your inquiring about it allows her to sort of come to terms with it and to seek the help that she needs. I believe these are tangible examples of the mysterious and yet very ordinary leading of the Holy Spirit in the lives of his children. The Holy Spirit does his work of building up the church in and through y'all, not just pastors. We recognize this, right? Sometimes we get fooled into thinking the Holy Spirit just makes us act like crazy, babbling lunatics. You've seen these sort of revivalistic sort of meetings where the Holy Spirit comes and just is unpredictable and makes you act crazy. That is not what we see in Scripture. What the Holy Spirit brings is wisdom and holiness and comfort. This is what true revival looks like. An unusually pronounced work of the Holy Spirit in a particular place that drives a deep desire to kill sin and to build up his church. That's the sort of revival that I desperately want to witness. The Holy Spirit also leads us by comforting us. That third office attributed to the Holy Spirit. So when you experience feelings of guilt, the Holy Spirit leads you to the blood of Jesus. When you experience shame, he reminds you that you are a redeemed and dearly loved child of God. When you're weary of the daily war with sin, he draws you to Christ where you can find rest. If you are sorrowful, the Holy Spirit draws you to the sympathetic high priest, Jesus. When you're tempted to obey the sinful passions of the flesh, he leads you to the protection of Jesus. When you're sad, he leads you to the tender love of your Father. When you're empty, when you're helpless, he leads you to the fullness of Christ's inheritance. When you're fearful that God is merely your judge, he leads you to call out to God as your Father who has set his redeeming love upon you and reminds you that no condemnation remains for you. Third, from condemned slave of sin to adopted child of God, verses 15 and 16. It says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Notice that the spirit of slavery in these verses is contrasted here with the spirit of adoption. Jesus, we just need to be clear here, Jesus, by his nature, has God as his father. He is eternally begotten of the father. He has the same divine essence as the father. That is not true of us. We do not, by nature, have God as our father in that sense. So... Jesus is the true son of God by nature. We uh, become true sons and daughters of God by adoption. It's only through the son and by the Holy Spirit that we are able to truly know God as our father. We are adopted into his family. He makes us members of his family. The Holy Spirit draws us up into the loving, eternal fellowship of the Trinity. Abba is one of the words in, the, in verse 16 that is not translated from the original language. 
If you've never read the Bible before, you have no history with Christianity, you might be confused about what that word means. It is not a Swedish pop group from the 70s. It is an Aramaic word that comes from the, the word for father, or my father, more specifically. Now, sometimes we'll hear it brought into English as daddy, but that is not true. It really doesn't quite do justice to what it originally meant in the Aramaic context. It's more like dear father. There is a, lovely, a loving reverence, which is combined with intimacy and affection in this relationship with our father. Our relationship to him as father is not trivial. It is something that is filled with awe and reverence. And we talk a lot about how Adam's fall broke the relationships that we experienced vertically between us and God and broke the relationships horizontally between us and one another. But I want to submit that there's a, another way in which sin has affected us and our understanding even of ourselves. Without the ability to, re- to, to relate to God as our creator, judge, and redeeming father, we wrestle with confusion about who we are. When we don't relate to God as father, we are confused about our identity. Who are we? When that relationship for which we were created is severed, we seek to fill that void by establishing our identity somewhere else. And it never satisfies. We try to find our true identity in political parties with identifying with certain passions of the flesh by signaling our virtue, by presenting ourselves as a particular kind of person, or by being known for opposing a different group of people. And what happens is we are dependent upon others to look at us, to recognize us, to affirm us, and to celebrate us as good people, or at least as better than others. But when we know God as redeeming Father, we're able to rest on His affirmation, That doesn't mean it's easy. We are often tempted by our indwelling sin to think that God doesn't love us. Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within. He tells us that we'll never be good enough. You'll never be a son or daughter of the king. Look at you. But to disbelieve God's very clear statement about his adopting us into his family is to call God a liar. I was struck by this quote from one of John Owen's other classic works, communion with the triune God, he says this, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is to not believe that he loves you. Satan rejoices when he's able to smuggle in accusations about God's character into your heart and mind. He would have you believe that you are a slave to your passions, that there is no hope for you, there is nothing you're ever going to be able to do about it give up. Just embrace it and get used to it. Find your identity in that. You may find it easier to believe that God is your judge than it is to believe that he is your loving father. But the Holy Spirit brings you an assurance of your adoption by witnessing alongside your spirit. Now, we can have external evidences that we're children of God, the sort of tests that we see in the book of 1 John, that we can pass a doctrinal test, that we know that Jesus came in the flesh. We can pass an ethical test, that there's an increasing holiness in us. We We can pass a relational test, that we have a love for the brothers and sisters. We can pass those tests and yet still be lacking assurance 
that we are actually saved, that we're actually members of God's family. Well, God tells us through Paul in Romans 8, 16, that for our assurance of God's love, we also need and we also get an ongoing encounter with the Holy Spirit, which brings us comfort and reminds us of our true identity. You may be dissatisfied with your holiness. I kind of hope you are. I know I am. You know, we're prone to think that our assurance of salvation sort of rises and falls based on the degree to which we've been able to mortify the passions of the flesh. But the Lord would have us turn away our vision from ourselves to Christ, in whom alone our assurance is to be found. He is my great father, I his true son. He dwells in me and I am with him one. So we might put it this way. The certainty of your salvation is founded upon the finished work of Christ, not your unfinished work of sanctification. It's important to recognize that the Spirit specifically bears witness with our spirit rather than to our spirit. Our own conscience can be weak. We need the Holy Spirit to take the witness stand for us over and over again in the trial to remind us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are a beloved child of God. Not only are we not guilty, we are legally children of God the Father, which means that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Point four, God's redeemed children inherit glory. Verse 17, he says, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. As children of God, we are promised an inheritance that is more glorious than anything that we can imagine. It's more glorious than anything that we could gain for ourselves. Because we are children, we are heirs. There's a very forceful security to this whole progression of thought. We are not condemned. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are adopted members of God's family. And because all of that is true, we stand to to gain the inheritance of our Father. First Peter writes of this inheritance. He writes of being born again into a living hope in chapter 1 through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, it is undefiled, it is unfading, it is kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Our inheritance cannot be removed. There is a great security in this. It cannot fade away. It is kept in heaven. It is reserved for you by name as an adopted son or daughter of God the Father. The story of redemption doesn't just end with us being not condemned. Great news as it is. The story of redemption moves on from there to us no longer having a sinful nature in glory before the face of God himself. This is the end goal of the Christian. I was helped this week by something John Piper said at the conference we were at. 
You know, I often like to emphasize the fact that Jesus got what he paid for on the cross. And I usually think of those in terms of uh, the fact that he secured justification for his people. He got what he paid for. But there's another sense in which he got what he paid for as, as well. I think he also secured our holiness, that Jesus died to secure our holiness, and he will get what he paid for. He didn't just make it merely possible. He secures it. Our posture as redeemed sons and daughters of the king should be to lean into the future and not to fall back into the past. This is what he's talking about, falling back into a spirit of slavery, of fear. We're to lean into the inheritance of holiness rather than backwards into the bondage of slavery. This inheritance is at least in part tied up in the final resurrection to be given to us in the last day, as First Peter talks about. Peter asks at the end of chapter 7, if you recall, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus our Lord. The answer is God. God will deliver us from this body of death. And he will do that to help us receive an imperishable spiritual body in which we will be able to behold our God. So he can be our God and we can be his people, which is, if there's a chorus to the Bible, that's it. It's a repeated theme that he could be our God and we could be his people. We inherit holiness without which no man can see God as a gift of the Holy Spirit. Because listen, God himself is actually what we inherit. The imperishable body that we get is a means of being able to be with God. Our goal is not to gain all the pleasures of the fallen world. It is God himself. Our goal is not to win in this life. It is to gain God in the next Our goal is not to gain all the pleasures of a fallen world or to find psychological prosperity in the here and now, but to find endless peace and rest in our final destination. Now, this is a a transitionary sort of thought here, and we're going to hear more about this in weeks to come. But notice that our inheritance of glory is preceded by suffering. If we expect to receive what Christ received, We should expect to walk the path of suffering as he did. Suffering precedes glory. This is a statement of Christianity. Sometimes it's lost, but this is very biblical, very clear. Jesus assumed humanity, and he lived in the likeness of sinful flesh, we see in Romans 8. He is sympathetic then with the the passions, the war that we wage against our flesh. There is suffering tied into having to live in this body of death. Hear this. Please don't let your suffering in this present life cause you to think that the Father doesn't love you. Your suffering and God's love for you are not at odds. So says this text. So says the life of Christ. These are hard words. I know that this is not a message that gains a crowd, but it is a message that builds the church. Have confidence. Draw near to God as your loving Father. And he promises to assure you of his love for you by his Holy Spirit. Keep fighting the good fight. We're almost home. If you're faint of heart, you're not alone. 
but we're almost home. Prepare your soul now for what lies ahead. This life is just a vapor, but we're almost home. Let's pray.